0: So how's everybody tonight? We're doing well. <clears throat> My uh, middle grandson, his name's Jackson, so we call him Jaxie. So I don't mind. Jaxie's okay. <laughs> it is all good. We're going to be at Jeremiah chapter thirty-three. So I invite you to open up. We are still in a section. If you remember, as we go through the book of Jeremiah. Uh, the prophet is not divided chronologically; it's divided by subject or topic. This area that we're in currently, in this part of Jeremiah, is dealing with God's comfort for His people. So we have a lot of promises from God to the nation. If you remember, we started it by talking about the time of Jacob's trouble and God's deliverance of the nation during that time. Then we discussed the new covenant. And ultimately, uh, God's deliverance uh, of the world through the new covenant. Then the restoration of Judah and Jerusalem last week, and uh, today we're going to talk a little bit, a little bit about God's grace. And there's some really unique uh, prophetic features in chapter 33 that uh, that point to Christ. So we will take a look at it together. So we will begin. Uh, Jeremiah 33, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. So remember, Jeremiah's in jail. He's in jail because what he said, people didn't want to hear. So remember, we've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. We find ourselves in days today where we're getting closer and closer to that, that being a reality within our nation. Certainly, depending on where you're at, what places you might find yourself, that could uh, be the case for you as well. Now, when we come to this understanding, it's one thing to be shut up in the court of uh, the king, put in jail because of God's word. That's okay. Being shut up in the court of the king or in jail for being a knucklehead, that's something different. So Christian knuckleheads are out there. It's okay. It's all right. We, I'm a Christian knucklehead too, but we—if we find ourselves in a position where we are being persecuted, it ought to be for our stance with Christ, right? Not because I'm just being a knucklehead. So we want to be able to speak clearly what the Word of God says, and if the Word of God doesn't say something about something, we—we we don't have anything necessarily to add. From, from that other than uh, our interpretation of other issues within Scripture. So when we come to it, we want to speak plainly what the Word of God says. Now the Lord says in verse 2, he wants to remind Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, who made the earth. You remember when Job was going through his struggles and he had some questions he wanted to ask God, you remember? He wasn't super happy with the way his life had gone, Right? Uh, and so he's talking to his friends who are kind of tearing him down and he's, he wants to have a moment to, to just ask God these questions and, and in the story he gets his moment, right? And it starts the same way. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? The idea, the reference is laying out who is God? He's the creator, He's the one who has put all of this together. He made the earth, the Lord who formed it, to establish it. So the earth has all been created for God's purpose, not ours. We're not the main ingredient in the story. We're a part of the story, but we're not the main ingredient in the story. The Lord created the earth to establish it for a purpose, the Lord, Yahweh, every time you see that capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, right? That's God's, his personal name of the Lord. The, the, the people, theologians call it the Tetragrammaton. It's the impronounceable name of God, Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H. I've, I, w and V are the same letter in in Hebrew. So uh, you have it, that's where they come up with a name either Yehovah. There's no J in Hebrew, so Yehovah or uh, Yahweh, right? So when we look at it, he's, he's reminding uh, Jeremiah, hey, I'm the creator. I've got this. Now, keep in mind, Jeremiah's in prison, right? He's, he's probably not thrilled with the circumstances. Remember outside, what's going on? The city's surrounded. It's the final conquest of Babylon. Now, Jerusalem has been conquered two other times, So this is the last one. When Nebuchadnezzar conquers it this time, there won't be a Jerusalem after. So he's going to utterly destroy this time. And so Jeremiah is not out there where he'd like to be, where he could be giving the the word of God to the people. He's locked up, and God's letting him know, look, I'm the creator of the universe. All of this is flowing in in, uh, for his purpose Yahweh is his name. Isaiah 40. Um, Isaiah gets something from the Lord. Similarly, the Lord speaking through Isaiah says, have you not known, have you not heard? Isaiah forty twenty eight. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. We have to remind ourselves of that today, don't we? Maybe we think God's been on vacation, and when he gets back, he's really going to be upset about what's going on in the world. But God's still moving. God's still working. Scripture would say, same to us, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. That means God knows what he's doing. The the difficulty lies in us understanding. But the Bible says God's understanding is unsearchable. He, God, gives power to the faint, To him who has no might, he increases strength, right? It's our reliance on the Lord that will give us strength. Just like Jeremiah needs to rely on the Lord, right? God will give him strength. And the Lord's going to get to that in verse 3 of of Jeremiah. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. You should recognize this part. Even youths shall faint and, and be weary. Young men will fall exhausted, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not grow faint. So Isaiah, in the same way, needing encouragement, God delivering that encouragement, not only to Isaiah, but to those who Isaiah was sharing the prophecy with. Here, the same thing is happening with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is, the Lord is saying, look, Jeremiah, I'm still here. I still got you. Look what he says in verse three. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Now here's where people get off the rails. They think what Jeremiah is talking about here that if we call to God, God's gonna give us a word of knowledge or understanding. He's gonna tell us things about the future that we don't know. But contextually what's going on here is Jeremiah is in prison And he doesn't understand what's going on. And he needs to know things that he's not able to grasp, able to hold on to. So the Lord says, call and I will answer you and I will tell you. What don't you know? You don't understand that I am in control. And so the Lord is saying, come to me, right? This is... This is very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's not because we already have rest. It's because he is our rest. Apart from Christ, we are constantly laboring uh, to try to be approved of God. But in Christ, we find our rest. In uh, Isaiah 55, the Lord would say through Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. How many times in your struggles have your thoughts pulled you away in, in a direction that you know is not godly? Your, the response of your heart, every time I watch the news, I do it. So, the response of my heart, the response, my attitude, all of that stuff, I know this is not how I've learned Christ. This is my response to circumstances. And what is it that the Lord is saying? Call on me and I will answer you. Rely on me. I am what you need, I am the understanding that you need. You need to turn from your thoughts and turn toward mine. On Isaiah 55, didn't the Lord declare, My thoughts are not your thoughts? We don't think the same way. And so the reminder from the Lord, he will have compassion on him to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God will provide that strength. So here Jeremiah in prison, called to me. I will answer you. I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. The encouragement that Jeremiah needs in the place that he's at. Because the Lord, we've been going through Jeremiah for a while, 33 chapters, and we've heard a number of times about the destruction of the city, right? Well, this is where the Lord's going to start with his encouragement. He says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city, the houses of the kings of Judah, that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds, (coughs) excuse me, and against the sword, they are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them up with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. So the first thing that the Lord's laying out for him as he refers back, look, Jeremiah, I know you're upset about the destruction of the city. You guys know the book after Jeremiah is called? Lamentations. Lamentations is Jeremiah's weeping over that last day when the city is destroyed. So the Lord's saying, look, I know this. I want you to understand, Jeremiah, this is the result. God's wrath is behind this. God's wrath. God's wrath is not like man's wrath. God's wrath is not the loss of self-control. God's wrath is the result of the wickedness of man. There is a boundary, a limit Read, I, uh, read Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 7. The Lord says, I will not always strive with men. Will not always. A period of grace, mercy, and compassion from God on the wicked does not have to last forever. So the Lord's telling Jeremiah, this is coming as a result of my anger and my wrath. Look at the last half of verse 5. For I've hidden my face from the city because of their evil. Remember last time they they've turned to me their back and not their face. Rebellion. The people have rebelled against the Lord. And so the Lord is giving them up. Uh, Romans chapter one, right? Romans chapter one, that the, the attitude of God's wrath poured out upon the wicked. But what's the cure? Look at verse six. It's not just that. God's wrath is not just wrath, there you go, destruction, everybody's gone. But he also, every time he speaks of his wrath, he speaks of the cure. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them an abundance of prosperity and security. So God's plan for the nation is not their destruction. This is... A position of judgment, the Lord is bringing them into a place of judgment, and in a future time, he will bring healing, he will restore the nation, and the nation will dwell in the abundance of prosperity, they will have peace, they will have peace in the land, and they will have security, you can read about the journey to that from when the exiles return in Ezra and Nehemiah. As the children of Israel return back to the land. Verse seven, he says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah, the fortunes of Israel, and rebuild them as they were at the first. So God is promising to put all the pieces that have been destroyed back together again. A man's not able. We make the same mistakes over and over and over again. But God promises to restore their fortunes, to bring them back. And then look at verse 3, what God promises. Or I'm sorry, verse 8. I will cleanse them. So the next thing God says, not only is he going to return them, he's going to bring a cure. Uh, he's going to bring health and healing and prosperity and security. Restore their fortunes, but he will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. Now when he talks about cleansing, that's a finished act. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, actually when you read Hebrews, it says it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin. The sacrifice didn't remove sin. Here God is talking about a cleansing. And we see the the vision, if you will, that the Lord lays out before Jeremiah as he lifts his eyes beyond the judgment they're at, looking forward to a cross upon a hillside. I will cleanse them from all their guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and their rebellion against me. God will bring cleansing. So he's going to bring healing. He's got a cure. He's going to let them dwell in the land securely. He's going to cleanse them from the guilt of their sin and forgive them of their sin. And the goodness of God will be poured out on the people. Look at verse 9. And this city shall be to me a name of joy. Now prior to this, God is saying the opposite. This is not my city no more. You're, you guys aren't for me. This is, this is my place, but this is, this is not, this is not uh, my city anymore. There's, there is a rebellion here. If we want to bring it into a human experience... Uh, let me try it like this. I have a house in California. I have people who rent that house in California. 2009 when we came here, you couldn't sell it because of the housing crash. So we've had that house ever since. It's why it took us so long to buy a house here. It's hard to have two houses. But we have a guy in there who pays the rent. And when he pays the rent, we make the house payment. Everything's good. And then came COVID. And the Brilliant politicians in my life have announced that nobody has to pay rent anymore, but I still have to pay a house payment. In the same way, this person living in my house has rebelled against me, right? He hasn't paid rent, and he's not planning on paying rent anytime soon, and according to the governor, he don't have to for 2020, so I... That's my problem to solve. Unfortunately, he hasn't said I don't have to pay my mortgage. But nonetheless, there's a rebellion, right? Now, normally we would say the landlord has the right to do what? To evict, right? The landlord has the right to evict. What we're reading here in Scripture is God's right to evict people from the land. Now, how much of the land does God owe? How much is his? Yeah, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? It is all his. Now, specifically, we're talking about his own special nation that he birthed, right, that he took, he created, he developed, who has rebelled against him. They're going into a time of exile. They're being evicted. But the Lord, in the same time, says, after, the, after a time, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to do I'm going to give you healing. I'm going to watch over you. Now he's saying, "Look, I want you to know that you, this place, it's a praise and a glory and it will be before all the nations of the earth who will hear of all the good that I do for them." <laughs> so he's talking about a time of blessing, a time of glory. And my opinion is the Lord is speaking about these things, the ultimate fulfillment of that, is what we call a millennial reign of Christ. We talk about the time when when the king will return and set up his throne on the earth where he will rule and reign as king. On that day, all the nations, everybody else, everyone around will see the good that I do for them and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I will provide for it. The nations will know. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it's a waste without man or beast. So that's about to happen. The people are about to proclaim that there's no Jerusalem anymore. There's no Judah anymore. Not man nor beast. There's nothing there. In the cities of Judah, the streets of Jerusalem are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast. There shall be heard again in this place. You will hear again the voice of mirth. There will be rejoicing. The Bible declares rather clearly that sorrow comes in the evening, but joy comes in the morning. Sufferings not permanent. Times of judgment and correction are not permanent. When the sound of mirth and joy and praise is is exile taken away the lord at the same time promises its return the voice of mirth the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the lord give thanks to the lord of hosts for the lord is good his steadfast love endures forever now I want you as we've looked as we're looking through this section we're hearing the promises of God and his restoration of the people and the sound of praise returning. I want you to notice that every time the Lord talks about it he says I will. I will do this. Look here at the at the end right here at the verse 11 for I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord. I will do this. It's a work of God. It's something that God will accomplish, that God will do in his people. He will once again bring shouts of praise for his people. And the sure promises of God, the restoration that God brings out, even the shepherds and the flocks. And in verse 12, for thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is a waste without man or beast and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities, in the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Once again, all the things that are lost. Now this reminds me too... When we talk about, uh, theologically, this thing called the fall of man. Because whatever man lost in the fall, he receives better in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He receives better under the new covenant. What was lost in Adam is found in Christ. Is returned, is received. The, The blessings that God will pour out. And then as we begin in verse 14, he talks about the government that is coming. and This is why I'm saying that the eyes are looking beyond the immediate future in 70 years. He's looking beyond it. Look what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The days are coming. The promise will be fulfilled. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The government that is coming is the government of Messiah. The ultimate deliverance of these promises is the deliverance that we have in Christ. When Jesus rules, when Jesus reigns. In Zechariah chapter 3, you have a period of time, when there is a high priest in the nation named Yeshua. You guys know what Jesus' name is in Hebrew? Yeshua. Oh, it's the same name. You have a high priest named Yeshua. And the Lord, through Zechariah, the prophet, delivers a prophecy. In Zechariah 3, verses 8 and 9, says, Hear now, O Yeshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, For they are men who are a sign. So the Lord says, hey, you guys are a sign. I'm going to give you a prophecy, but you're a sign. You that are sitting here. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, Nezer. I will bring my servant the branch, A phrase similar to this, scripture similar to to this, is used in Matthew. Matthew in his gospel says that by this we will know that he is called a Nazarene. Nazar, the branch. Scripture lays out for us, I will bring my servant the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Yeshua... On a single stone with seven eyes. Now, the idea prophetically, single stone, what it, ought to, what it ought to bring our minds to prophetically is the stone cut out, not with hands, that strikes the kingdoms of men in the feet, grinds it into powder, and grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth, the kingdom of God, the stone, the rock. And Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, who's the rock? The rock is Jesus. The rock that followed the nation of Israel and provided water for them. Who's the rock? The rock is Christ. Paul says it very clearly. That rock is Christ. The seven eyes talks about complete understanding. The stone with complete understanding. Yeshua, his name just happens to be exactly the same, right? You are a sign. Yeshua, a single stone with seven eyes. I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of the land, what's he say, in a single day. The Lord says, here's a sign for you, Yeshua. You are a sign. And I will set a stone before Yeshua. Seven eyes, complete understanding. That stone that will deliver the world to the nations of the world to the kingdom of God. And he will deliver the sin of the land in a single day. Anybody know what that day was called? Calvary. Calvary. He will deliver it in a single day. In Jeremiah 33 verse 15, what did he say? I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. So it's coming from the line of David, right? Jesus. You have two lineages that go back to King David, both his mother and the adoptive father. The right to the throne through the adopted father, right? The father adopts the son. Happened in a regular relationship, just like Jesus' relationship. That was his legal lineage. Gives him direct path to the throne of David. What's he going to do, this branch? He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is what Messiah will do. We don't have that now. We thirst for that now, don't we? We sit around and argue about how we think we can get to justice. And we can't agree. We think it should be like this. Someone else thinks it should be like that. And so we argue back and forth. But the reality is we're not able to come to a place of justice. We don't do it. We're not, we're not equipped. Naturally, we do not have what it takes. In Micah chapter 6, at verse 6, it says, what shall, uh, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God. Now that's the nature, listen, this is going to be important. We're going to see it in a couple of verses. That's the nature of Christ, to do justice, to bring justice and righteousness, right? Christ is going to bring that. And you and I, as followers of Christ, ought to reflect that, right? We, we are following Christ. We want to follow that example. We want to follow his teachings. We want to be like him. He does justice, loves mercy, loves mercy. Walks humbly, right? He provides that example. Look at verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved, southern kingdom. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. What will they call that, that place? Yahweh Sidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness just interesting to me that paul writing to the church at corinth in second corinthians chapter 5 would say for our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin for me that i might become what the righteousness of god what will they call that place the lord is our righteousness that's what they will call that place That's what they will call that land. That's what they will call that city. What city? Jerusalem. New Jerusalem. That place that is filled with the saints who will be able to proclaim the Lord is our righteousness. He makes us righteous, right? It's he who makes us just. It's he who makes us humble. It is an our submission to him, our surrender to him, our, our presenting ourselves to him as he works in and through our lives through the activity of um, sanctification that brings us day by day closer and closer to the goal, which will be realized when Jesus Christ rules and reigns. When you see him, the Bible says, you will be like him. You will see like he sees. You will know like he knows completely, totally. The idea of being able to become what it is that God requires will be accomplished when the branch comes. He will execute justice. He will bring righteousness to the land. All the while, that 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 dream of Nebuchadnezzar echoes over and over again as the kingdoms of man come come and fail, 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 come and fail. I studied history. We haven't had one make it yet. No, have we? All these great ideas, great rebellions, great plans for great nations to do great things that have ended just like we're watching on the news today over and over and over and over until a rock from the heavens strikes the kingdoms of men and becomes the kingdom of God. On that day, he will be our righteousness. He is our righteousness. He is everything that we need. In those days, they will call that place the Lord is our righteousness for thus says the lord david shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the king of israel now there's two points that i want to really pull out these next couple of verses for thus says the lord david shall never lack what does it say he will never lack a man doesn't say that there will be an eternal king a king after a king after a king after a king he will never lack a man to sit on the throne the line of david will not perish Does the line of david perished jesus christ is of the line of david and he is eternal eternal once we arrived at christ prior to the arrival of christ how many times has satan tried to abolish the king uh, the the davidic line Do you know that that twice biblically there was one infant child left one of those children's name was Josiah. Interesting. As we, look at, as we look at this, we see there will never lack a man to sit on the throne. And the, Le- the Levitical priest shall never lack a man. The priesthood will never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, to make sacrifices forever for me the kingdom of God is eternal the king is eternal and Jesus Christ holds two positions you know what they are he is a king and he is a priest for how long forever forever Hebrews chapter 7 we're going to take a look at it and Try to unpack it a little bit tonight and see if we can do it justice. But Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 11, says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the, the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would we have for another priest to arise from the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Why is there another priesthood? Now, The writer of Hebrews has already discussed the idea that Jesus Christ is our high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek by this reality. Melchizedek appears in Genesis chapter 14. Without genealogy, without mother, without father, without beginning of days. Doesn't necessarily mean that he's a theophany. What it means is he just shows up and is accepted as a priest of the most high God. And Abraham, who is the father of all who have faith, pays him tithes. He honors Melchizedek as high priest. Makes it a legitimate line of high priest before the creation of the Levitical priesthood. That's Abraham, right? Jacob wasn't alive yet. Jacob wasn't born. And if Jacob wasn't born, neither was Levi. This is an earlier priesthood that the scripture talks about that the writer of Hebrews lays out before us. He says, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Old covenant to new covenant. Old Covenant had a priesthood, Levitical priesthood. New Covenant also has a priest. Who's that priest? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that priest. One and only, just in case there's any confusion, there can only be one priest of Melchizedek. Only one. And he does, unless he dies, there can be another. That's how the priest was exchanged. That's how the high priest, another high priest came on. But Jesus Christ does what? He never dies. He's eternal. The only high priest the scripture will lay out for us that we need. He goes on to say, uh, "...for the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. So nobody from the line of Judah can be our priest. How is it that Jesus is our priest? This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent but on the power of an indestructible life. The only way you can be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek is to not have beginning or ending of days. There's only one who meets that qualification. His name? Jesus. Jesus. For on the one hand, he says... Or right, let me back up. So, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. From on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Paul will tell us the law, the purpose of the law was not to bring us to perfection. The purpose of the law, the law was a tutor to teach us that we need a savior, right? So the law is not perfect. doesn't mean it's not good. It just means the law was not perfect. It couldn't change us. What was necessary for change was a Savior. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. Through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who were formerly become priests, they were made such with an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. He will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of the better covenant. Jesus Christ becomes the high priest of the new covenant jesus Jesus Christ is the guarantor He's the one through through whom He will forgive their sins and remember their iniquity no more, right? He's the deliverer, the one who accomplishes this. So when the Lord says, you will never lack a man to sit on the throne, I believe that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You will never lack a priest who can offer the offerings. Why? Because Jesus Christ offered himself how many times? Once. For who? For all. Once for all. Completed. It's a finished Work. The writer of Hebrews tells us there is now no more offerings. There is none to be offered. Jesus Christ has fulfilled it all. He is the fulfillment of the very things that the Lord is laying out about the kingdom, the promises to Judah for the nation. Look, this is how this will be accomplished through Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. A high priest did what? Was supposed to have compassion for the people. He was their intercessor. What does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? Does he intercede for us? He intercedes. Does he ever grow weary? Does he need sleep? Is he ever not watchful? Is he ever not interceding? The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. The work of the high priest, the work of the king, The king, the priest, ultimately prophet, priest, and king wrapped up in one. So what's the guarantee? God's laying out. Here's the plan. Jeremiah, I know you're in prison. Jeremiah, I know you're here. (coughs) I know you're disappointed. I know you maybe think Things should go another way, but I have a plan. I have a purpose. I'm bringing the nation back. I will bring them to a place where their sins can be forgiven. I will bring them to a place where they will receive atonement. I will bring them to a place where they no longer will have a high priest that fails them, but they will have a high priest that is absolutely um, able to accomplish the role. To do all that is necessary, he's saying, I'm going to do all these things. then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah verse nineteen thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the night so that the day and the night will not come at their appointed time, then I will break my covenant with David. Uh, I will break the covenant with David, my servant, it may be broken.' So that, there shall not, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And I will break my covenant with the Levitical priests as my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Now when we talk about the idea of the priesthood we see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the high priest but the scripture, the New Testament lays out for us that we are become a kingdom of priests. You and I who minister to him. We are ministers to him. All minister means is servant. right? We are servants of the most high God. We are there to serve him. Our lives are about serving the Lord. There will be a Growth. The priesthood will no longer be, be limited as it was at this time, but rather it will grow. Just like there will be a spiritual Israel, there still is a, a genetic, a true, actual Israel, but there's a spiritual Israel that that the church fills. There will be a spiritual priesthood that, that the believer fills that position. He's going to restore it. Now, what did he say? My promise is going to happen as long as there is a night and a day. So as soon as there are no more days or no more nights, then God says, I'll break my promise. But as long as there is a day and a night, I have a plan, Jeremiah. And all of history is moving toward culmination. The story of men leads to the pinnacle of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection is the purpose uh, for which the exile is taking place, and from which the exile is a sign, a symbol of what God is going to ultimately do. He still has a plan and a purpose for Israel. We're going to see that in just a moment. He still has a plan and a purpose for them. He's going to fulfill his promises that he made specifically to the nation as long as there is day and night God won't break his promise Romans chapter 11 right has the Lord cast off Israel so that they would just be finished or be done certainly not he has grafted in the wild olive branch he can also graft in the natural right We have no way of boasting. God's the one who did the work. He is able to do the work then as well. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in verse 23. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and fixed the order of heaven and earth, I will, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to notice who, who he names. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, are the forefathers of the nation of Israel. So now, as we look at verses 23 to 26, God's attention, again, is drawn to the actual nation. And they're saying, he's saying, now the people are saying, I've rejected the two two families. I've I've rejected the nation of Israel. I'm not going to accomplish the things that I promised to them. And then the Lord says, the only way you can say that is if there is no day, no night, and the heavens cease to exist. No sun, no moon, no stars, You ever read the end of the book of Revelation? (laughs) There's a day when the stars fall from the heavens. No. When the sun is turned to black, the moon's turned to blood at the establishment of the kingdom of Christ. But as long as there is day and night and the heavens remain, God has a plan for the nation, Israel. He has a purpose for them. This is what he's saying. He's saying, look, if that all ends, then I will reject the offspring of of Jacob. If that all ends, I will reject my servant, David, and I won't have one of them to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. The nations rebelled against God And God disinherited the nations. You read it in Genesis 11. God disinherits the nations. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. I want to say chapter 8. But uh, 832, 838, I don't know, I'll have to look. But anyways, God disinherits the nations. And then he says, I'm going to build my own nation, which will be a light to the other nations. And I'm going to build this nation up. And through that nation, I'm going to bring the ultimate answer for all the nations. And as he worked in that nation, he made promises to that nation. I'm going to do these certain things for you. And the Lord's saying, I'm still going to do those things for them. And through them, through the seed of Abraham, has the whole world been blessed? What's the seed of Abraham? The seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. How do we have our sins forgiven? Through Jesus Christ. He's the promised seed of Abraham. But there was a nation that God brought through Abraham... There's a nation that God utilized to bring to us the Messiah, to lay out before us the oracles of God, right? Where did the Bible come from? That's where it came from. The promises that God has for them, he says, I will fulfill them. I will accomplish for you the things that I promised you. I will restore your, for, your fortunes and I will have mercy on you as long as... As there is day. In Jeremiah 31, which we just looked at a couple of weeks ago, we're reminded of this scripture, Jeremiah 31, 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth is his name, the Lord of the angel armies, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. So as long as there's the heavens, as long as the sun and the moon are there, God will finish his promises to them. He will accomplish those promises to them. So as Jeremiah is in prison and he's bummed about the way things are going, he's going to write an entire book that we won't get to next week, but eventually we'll get to Lamentations, about his sorrow over the pain and the suffering that, that the people are going through. And remember that pain and suffering was their choice, right? They didn't have to be conquered three times. They were conquered once. Daniel went into captivity Under Nebuchadnezzar, that was the exile, but they kept rebelling, rebelling, rebelling. They become a microcosm of the world in rebellion against God. Read the book of Revelation. What's the book of Revelation about? The book of Revelation is about the world in rebellion against God. And judgment after judgment after judgment comes upon the world, and over and over again you have the same phrase in the book of Revelation, and still they would not repent. Still they would not repent. Still they would not repent. That judgment ultimately will lead to the judgment seat, right, of Christ, or the the great white throne judgment before the Lord God Almighty, where Everyone will stand. Those names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right, will find eternity with Christ. Those who are not will not. Rebellion, rebellion. You don't have to rebel all the way to the end. You can repent and believe at any time. That's the call of the nation of Israel. That was supposed to be their call, right? Repent! Remember John the Baptist, who was trying to get the the eyes of the fathers back on the sons. What was it? What what did John the Baptist say? Repent, repent, repent! When Jesus began preaching in 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 the Gospel of Mark, what was his initial message? Repent, repent! He was baptizing right out there with John the Baptist. Repent! He began to teach that all men everywhere ought to repent and believe. Repent and believe. The call, right? This is the history of the rebellion of man and God's ultimate salvation of all who will believe. And God's judgment of all who will rebel. Story laid out since Genesis and a small picture of it laid out for us in Jeremiah 33. Amen? Amen? Won't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we come before you. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word, Lord. I pray, God, I'm, I'm sure that, that uh, I've said confusing things. Lord, I pray by your spirit, you would bring to remembrance those things of you, God, that they would find fertile soil within our hearts, that they might uh, just develop through a seed of faith and grow In understanding, Lord God, I pray, Lord, that we might, if we're challenged, search the scriptures daily for it is these that speak of you, that describe for us the beauty of your salvation. Lord, I pray that we might understand and know, open our eyes, open the eyes of our understanding as we come to the scripture, Lord God. And may you be glorified and magnified as we trust in you, in Jesus' name, amen.